Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, F-Bomb. Lead Pastor David Fossil shows us how so many people demonstrate frustration and anger when they're wronged. Today, we look at the 411 of forgiveness as we're helped to have a better understanding of what forgiveness is, how it impacts our lives, and the effect it has on our relationships. Listen as Pastor Dave challenges us to live our lives without the feelings of frustration and anger that build up within us and make us want to hold on to the hate that decimates us. Alexander Dumas is famously known for having written uh, The Three Musketeers, Uh, but in 1844 he published and released a best-selling novel uh, that has been made into a movie repeatedly and repeatedly, of which we just saw a clip. It was entitled The Count of Monte Cristo. It's a fabulous story. Uh, if you haven't rented the DVD, go out and get it. It's a, it's a great movie. Um, it's the story of a very kind, very gentle, somewhat naive sailor by the name of Edward Dantes. And as a result of different situation and, and things happening, he is set up and intentionally and unjustly taken advantage of and imprisoned in a very famous uh, prison in France called Chateau d'If. Um, uh, solitary confinement, maximum security, uh, very violent prison. And he spends 13 years there. And it's during these 13 years that he meets another inmate. And this other inmate is very wise and little by little helps him process and helps him understand how bad he was taken advantage of and how other people that surrounded him, those that were closest to him, betrayed him. Eventually, uh, Dantes uh, is able to escape, and he spends the rest of his life as the Count of Monte Cristo, trying to exact his revenge on those who hurt him. Uh, The scene that you just watched is a scene in which his former fiance, when they were basically just kids and before he was sent to prison, finally realizes that this man who has come into her life 20 years later was that fiancé that she had way back when. And she turns out to be one of the the good people, but she had married his best friend, which was the man who betrayed him. And um, the, the, the movie is just chock full, and the book is chock full of incredible quotes, but there's one particularly in this scene that I want to draw your attention to. When he says to her, Don't rob me of my hate, because it's all that I have left. When people hurt you and they harm you and they sin against you, what you will find is you will be filled with feelings of sadness or discouragement. Uh, You will be filled with feelings of frustration or anger. Um, You will be filled at times um, with numbness. You can't feel anything. Uh, And at times you will be filled with hate or a combination of all of those put together. Don't rob me of my hate because it's all that I have left, he says. As we continue our series called the F-bomb on forgiveness, today uh, I'm going to intentionally challenge you to do something that's going to be very, very difficult. Uh, I'm telling you in advance, at the end when we conclude our study, I'm going to be challenging you to seek forgiveness for those to those that you've hurt and harmed or to offer forgiveness to those who have harmed you. In fact, once I went through the study, I intentionally took out 
fun stories. I intentionally removed several jokes because the topic in which we're going to be talking about and and what we're going to be covering is going to be difficult because you will be in a position to remember situations and be remembering people that hurt you. A coach, a pastor or a priest, an ex-boyfriend or a girlfriend, a spouse, a kid, an employer, a college roommate, Someone that hurts you. And God has brought you here today to hear from his word and challenge you. Don't live with those feelings of anger, frustration, discouragement, sadness, and hate. Don't live with them. I've got a solution. If you're willing to embrace it, I've got a solution for you. And it's called forgiveness. Towards the end of the scene, you don't hear it really, really well, but... Uh, his former fiance, like I said, she turns out to be one of the good people in the story. She, she encourages Dantes to embrace God and to embrace uh, his faith. And she says this to him, don't slap God's hand away. That's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. God is going to speak into your heart and into your mind. Don't slap his hand away. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the gospel of Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at an incredibly popular story, a story every one of us have heard before. But my guess is if you've not looked at it from the angle, we're going to look at it today. It's the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. And we've all heard this story before. But what I want us to do is intentionally to look at the story from a new angle, from a different position. okay? and look at it only from the perspective of trying to understand and define what forgiveness is and what it is not. Okay, and then how to give it or how to receive it. Okay, I want to encourage you to have your Bibles open because there are times when it's such a long story. I'm not going to put up all the verses, but I will be reading different different section of it. Uh, the, The story starts as we pick it up in verse 11. And here's what we read. Jesus continued. Now, right away, when you see that, you have to understand, well, what did he continue from? You got to go back to the beginning of the chapter and you got to realize that this is a continuation of three stories. Story number one, the parable or story of the lost sheep. Story number two, the parable or story of the lost coin. And now story number three, the parable of the lost son. And the emphasis that God is bringing to his hearers and to us this morning is very simply, lost people matter to me. And he tells one story and then he tells another story. And if he doesn't, I'm going to tell you a really long story to help you understand lost people matter to me. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons, two boys. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. I've highlighted it and bolded it. Remember that we're going to come back to it because it's significant in the story. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. So now he has cash. So he jumps in the convertible. He packs his bag, it says, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth and wild living. He had no need to get a job. So all he, because he had cash, so he just spent it. Later on, and and even in the context of that phrase, wild living, the context is he spent it on booze and he spent it on drugs and he spent it on women. Okay? Now what Jesus is doing is he's setting us up to try and help us understand what forgiveness is. So he's piling more and more onto this son. He didn't take the cash, go invest it in real estate, and have some income coming in. No, he just wasted it, essentially is what he did. He squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine. 
So the economy takes a downturn. There's a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. He had never experienced this before. He had cash to burn, but now he's running out of cash. And the last little section of the story that I want to point out to you before we keep moving on is this one right here. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country. He needs a job. There's no restaurants jobs. There's no construction job. What he ends up doing is finding a farming job who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. If you're jotting down notes, one of the first thing we need to help understand is that forgiveness has nothing to do with justifying someone's actions or minimizing what they did. Every once in a while, I overhear conversations or, or I'm in a situation where someone says, I, I am so sorry for what I did. And the other person says, don't mention it. No problem. Just forget about it. And what we end up doing, we think that that's being mature. It's not being mature at all. No, forgiveness doesn't mean you minimize what they did. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you forget about it or don't mention it. No, forgiveness highlights how bad what they did was. And I'm going to forgive you anyway. Don't minimize it. And, and, And now we see that in this story because of the three things Jesus brings up. Okay, number one was the previous slide. He highlights that he was to his dad and he asked, can I have my share of the inheritance? Can I have my share of the estate? Now, law prescribed only two ways you could get your inheritance in those days. Two ways. Number one, obvious way, dad dies. Number two, dad is incapacitated either physically or mentally. Pretty much nothing has changed in all these years. Isn't that the way we kind of inherit what we got? You know, there comes a point in time when mom and dad, they can't handle and we pick up the paycheck. We start paying the bills and taking care of things. That's when you're in charge. Nothing has changed. But the law also prescribed that if you ever did what he did, you were breaking all kinds of spiritual and legal laws. Because essentially what this boy is doing is he's going to his dad. and He says, dad, our relationship It's as if it didn't exist. It's as if it was dead. So let's stop pretending. Why don't you give me the cash that I deserve? I have coming to me. And why don't I get out of your hair? And we don't have to hang out anymore. It's a slap in the face of his dad and his family. You don't do that. Strike number one. Strike number two. I already explained to you what he did with the money. And so, again, put yourself in the, in, in the seats of those that are listening. He, he makes a family mistake. Big problem. He makes a financial mistake. I'm just going to spend money, right? And then he, he, he goes right after his Jewish roots. Don't miss the detail of the job that he gets. He gets a job feeding pigs. They're Jewish. They're kosher. They're not supposed to have carnitas. Okay, and yet what he's doing is he's trying to help them understand this kid couldn't be doing more bad things. Right. He's setting the hearer up. Don't ever minimize what the other person did. Don't ever, ever justify what the other person did. It gets so bad. Right. That at the end of this little section right here, he's so hungry that he starts to look at what he's feeding the pigs and he, and he says, maybe that tastes good. That's like going to McDonald's with your kids. You know, they want a happy meal. Okay, we'll go to happy meal. And then you're done and you're starting. You got the tray and you're throwing, you know, leftover fries in there. And as you're throwing it in, you see a half-eaten Big Mac and you think to yourself, yummy. Has that ever happened to you? Because that's what's happening to him right here. 
He's looking at the trash and thinking, maybe that tastes pretty good. See, so forgiveness never, God never asks you to minimize what they did. Just get over it. It wasn't that bad. He never asks you to do that. Forgiveness has nothing to do with minimizing or justifying. The story goes on in verse 17 and we read this. When he came to his senses, the boy said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father and say to him. And he begins to pre-plan his speech. Have you ever done that? Right. Whether it's your boss or whether it's your spouse or whether so. Yeah. What do I got to say? And then I'm going to say this and then they're going to say that. And he's pre-planning his speech. Here's the speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. The theology of sin in this verse could not be more complete. When we go about seeking forgiveness, we normally do one, but don't do both. Understand that sin understood correctly is an affront or wronging towards an individual. Right. I've sinned against you. And but first and foremost, sinning against your heavenly father. Some of us apologize to the person, but don't apologize to God. Or some of us are really God good at apologizing to God, but we don't apologize to the person. No, understood correctly, forgiveness involves understanding what you did to people and what you did to God. I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And then the verse goes on and it says this. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired Servants. One of the things we have to understand about forgiveness is it does not mean that the relationship goes back to normal. It does not mean that you resume the relationship without any changes. Every once in a while, I'm counseling a couple or I'm talking to some family or I'm talking to some friends and something has happened and one of them made a mistake and they come clean and they go, you're right, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Right? And I've apologized. And then that person goes, but, 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 you know, can't can we just go back to normal? Can't we just go back to the way things were? And the answer is, no, not necessarily. You see, forgiveness doesn't mean you hit the reset button and everything goes back to normal. God is not asking that of you. In some cases, he says, no, it'll never go back to normal. I'm going to ask you to forgive, but it, but it doesn't mean everything goes. No, you, you may have to you may have to build some hedges both to protect yourself or to protect yourself emotionally. Or, I'm going to build some hedges. Yes, I forgive you. I remember having a conversation with a woman a while back. and She was getting beaten by her husband. And she thought it was godly to stay with him. I said, you want to know what's godly? Get out of that home or kick his butt out now. Get him out. And let's deal with this. Let's fix this. Right? He sort of fixed it. Right? I apologize. Can I come back? Uh, nope. Haven't fixed it. And I've built myself some hedges of protection. You see, forgiveness doesn't automatically mean you hit the reset button and everything goes back to normal. That is not necessarily wise. It is not necessarily mature. And this boy gets it. We know he gets it by the phrase that I've highlighted and underlined. I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask my dad, can I be now one of your hired servants? You see, instinctively, he knows I can't go back and just I reassume my position as son. But what you have to understand is that that term that I have highlighted is an employment term. 
And there were various types of employment terms to refer to servants in those days. The top term was a bondsman. A bondsman was, uh, was a servant, was an employee that lived on the estate. Maybe it was a cook, or maybe it was a maintenance person, or maybe it was, you know, a nanny. They lived with the family. When the job was done for the day, they stayed on the compound. Normally, they stayed with the family forever and died with the family. It was the highest level of employee or servant you could be. Okay, then right underneath them, what was what what was referred to as the lower class servant or the lower class employee. These were individuals that maybe uh, were subcontractors. You had a working relationship with them. Maybe you worked with a crew of people and they came in and did all the gardening and did the hedges and mowed the lawns or whatever. They came in once a week, but they didn't stay at the compound when they were done. They would leave. And you had a working relationship with them. Anytime there were any electrical problems, you call this one family, this one business, and they would come in and they would take everything. And then when they were done, they would leave. You have a continuing working relationship with them. But they were not bondsmen. They were what was called lower class employees or lower class servants. The term that you have here is the third and the lowest term. What these hired servants would do is they would show up at the estate at 5.36 a.m. And they'd stand by the gates and they'd wait and they'd pace until they see, see the boss man. And they'd say, you got any work for us just for one day? You got, it's basically what the guys at Home Depot do, right? Can anybody give me a job for 24 hours? I'll clear the backyard. I'll scrape whatever I got to do. You want to give me a job for 24 hours and then no more commitment. That's what a hired servant was. And every once in a while, the... The, the, the head of the family would come out and say, you and you and you and the rest of you can go. You see, the boy understands because of what I did. There's a very good chance the relationship will never go back to, quote, normal. And you have to understand that when God asks us to forgive or seek forgiveness, it doesn't mean things go back to the way they were. They might, but there's a good chance that they won't. The story goes on in verse 20, and here's what we read. So the boy got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I love that phrase. I love that phrase. It it implies that the dad is on the front porch and he's pacing and he's looking and he's pacing and he's looking every once he stops he says, no that's not my boy and he's pacing and he's looking and then he sees someone a long way off he grabs his bin- it's he's a long way off but even though he's a long way off he knows that's my boy those of you who have kids can't you just recognize your kids from a long way off i can you know, I could see my son from for, forever. He's got that long, skinny frame, big head, bold legs, you know. Hey, he looks just like his dad when I was that age, you know. And that dad is there and he sees. That's my boy. He may have left with a convertible, but he's walking back home. That's my boy. And then what he does, does is so incredibly powerful. His father's son was filled with compassion for him. Why? Because he looked like a bum and he smelled like pig. Would it have been okay? 
would it have been reasonable for the dad to recognize his son and go, I knew he was, I, I, I knew it. Look, I, look, at. he left with the suit. He left with the convertible. Look at him now. He must have just wasted that money. Would that have been reasonable? Yeah. It's obvious what happened. You don't need an explanation to know what happened. But he recognizes his son. He's filled with compassion. And he runs to his son. He throws his arm around him and he kisses him. You know why that is so incredible? You know why that is so impressive? Because we know the front part of the story. We understand why the boy is coming home. We've heard him rehearse his speech. Dad doesn't know that. For all he knows, the boy's coming home for more cash. You see what I'm saying? Which leads us to a further understanding of forgiveness. You don't give forgiveness, okay, only conditionally or only if they earn it back. So I'll forgive you as long as you do this and you do this and you do this and then you do that. That's not how God gives forgiveness. That's not what he expects from us. He expects us to offer forgiveness the way the father gave it to this son. He doesn't even know if he's apologizing yet. And he's giving forgiveness anyway. Giving forgiveness anyway. And then the last major thing I want you to understand about forgiveness from a definitional standpoint is in verses 21 and following. Now, these verses I do not have on the screen, so grab your Bibles. But in verse 21, Luke chapter 15, here's what we read. The son said to him, so they finally meet, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he gets out the, the rehearsed speech, right? Verse, uh, verse 22, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, a ring and, uh, on his finger and sandals on his feet. Implication is he went with all those things and he came back with none of them, right? He had the family signet ring. He had sandals. By the way, if you were barefoot, it was signed that you were a slave. Okay, so he says, let's reestablish his position in the family. And then verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and father and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. This is a picture of Amy Beale. Amy Beale, at the age of 26, in 1993, suffered an incredibly violent death. She was an Albright student in Orange County, and she went to South Africa and began to work with an organization uh, that was trying to register um, blacks to, to participate in the first um, free election that had occurred in South Africa in many, many years after apartheid. And she was going about the process of doing this, and she went into one particular neighborhood, and she was dragged from her car, and she was stabbed and beaten until she died. A mob of angry Afri Africans that were intent on the violent overthrow of the Afrikaans and the apartheid government, just saw a white face, and so that's what they did. But what makes the story so incredible is not uh, how Amy Beale lost her life. What makes the story so incredible is what her parents, Linda and Peter Beale, did. We have a picture of Linda. 
Uh, that's Amy's mom. They too lived in Orange County. And when they heard about the death of their daughter, they sold everything they had in Southern Cal and they moved to South Africa and established a foundation called Friends of Amy Beale or the Amy Beale Foundation to work in the very same communities where his, their daughter had died. And what makes the story even more incredible is the individual you see in the picture with Linda was one of the ones that was in that mob that took their daughter's life. They all call Linda Mukula, which means grandma. And somehow or another, this mother was able to get to the point where she serves those who hurt her and even welcomes them back into a, into a relationship. She was once interviewed to try and help others understand how could you possibly do this? To which she said this, forgiving is looking at ourselves and saying, I don't want to go through life feeling hateful and vengeful and angry because that does me no good. You see, what you need to understand about forgiveness, I have it there. It's beneficial more than to the one receiving it. Sometimes we think I offer forgiveness. I left them off the hook. See, now they don't have to see. But forgiveness is just as powerful and just as healthy to you. To you, if you don't forgive, you will carry all kinds of garbage in your soul. And you will treat others around you that you care about in ways you don't understand because you're carrying that. Forgiveness is as much about you as about the person that hurt you. Now, even though we've established this, it's interesting that not everybody responds the same way to people who have harmed us. Verse 28, the story wraps up, and let's read it if you want to follow in, in your Bibles. Chapter 15, verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, which should be a good, fun family reunion, turns into a family fight because the older brother's not happy. Verse 29, he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he calls him this son, not my brother. Now, when the son of yours, I'm cutting, I'm cutting the cord with him. When the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. You know, I, I don't have it in your notes as a blank, but I, I, maybe I don't even have to say it. You, you do know that forgiveness is not easy. It's not natural. And frankly, it's not even fair. It's not. And yet God asks you to do it anyway. He asks you to do only what he's already done for you. Let me also add that forgiveness has nothing to do with your feelings. Nothing whatsoever to do with your feelings. I have people tell me, well, pastor, I don't, I, I don't want, you know, I don't want to deny my, myself. I don't, I want to be true to my true self. I don't feel like forgiving. I, I don't want to be fake. I want to be true to my, my myself, right? It, don't be true to yourself. That's the whole point of salvation. That you would not be true to yourself. That you would be true to the self that God has placed in you because of Jesus Christ. Don't be true to yourself. My self, your self, is sinful at its core. 
Don't be true to yourself. God expects us to forgive. He expects us to forgive. In Ephesians 4, I don't have it on the screen, so I have it ready just to reach you. Just listen real quickly. What Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. I'm assuming you don't want to do that, right? I'm not going to tell you what comes next. Just ask yourself, do you want to be in that situation where you are grieving the Holy Spirit? I don't. No, I don't. Are you guys out there? You don't want to do that, right? Okay, now listen to how, here's what's going to happen for you to grieve the Holy Spirit. Ready? Here we go. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed by the day of redemption. In other words, don't grieve the Holy Spirit because through him and through the Father and Son, you got salvation. He uses the trump card. Okay, you got me. Right? And then, and then he says this. Here's how you do it. So, get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. So you choose not to seek or offer forgiveness. What you're automatically doing is grieving the Holy Spirit. So now, not only do I have an issue with someone else who's harming me, but now I have an issue with God, or He has an issue with me. The point being, forgiveness is not just for the person who harmed you and hurt you. Forgiveness is as much for your benefit as anything else. Now, understanding what forgiveness is and what it is not now puts us in perspective to figure out what do we do by giving it or seeking it. There's two last things. This is all I'm going to spend my time talking about. So let's talk about it real quick. Look at it in your study guide. Offering forgiveness. Offering forgiveness. Now I have to offer forgiveness. That does not mean you pick up the phone this afternoon and call someone from your past and say, you know, I was just in church and, 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 and I, I just want you to know I forgive you for being a jerk. Praise Jesus. Praise the Lord. That is not what he wants you to do, okay? Doesn't involve that, okay? Offering forgiveness when others have wronged you requires four things. Number one, you relinquish your right to get even. You relinquish your right to get even. There's something within us that wants to pay the other person back, that wants to hurt them back. Now, let me just say, that's a natural emotion, you want to even up the score. You want to have it balanced. Okay? What you have to understand, however, Romans chapter 12, verse 17, God says this. It is not your place to take revenge. Don't take revenge and leave that up to me. I will even up the score. I will give consequences. I will make sure there's justice. If you don't get in the way... I'll take care of it. Now, let me ask you a question for that person that hurt you, harmed you and sinned against you. Do you believe God when he says he's going to take care of it and even up the score? Yeah, I believe him, but I want to know what. No, no, you don't get to know. Do you or do you not believe and trust God? See, at some point in time, you have to have peace that he knows how to even up the score. You have to have peace with the fact that he knows what happened to you. He knows the pain it caused and how it was a sin against you and against him. You may never know until you get to heaven how he evened up the score. But trust him. Trust him. I got this. 
trust me, there's a consequence to everything that is done. Trust me, I've got this. And you have to give it over to him. Relinquish your right to get even. One of the most powerful stories I've heard in years was the story of a guy by the name of Kevin Tunnell. Kevin Tunnell was sued for $1.5 million by a family. And then to everyone's surprise in the court system, lawyers worked out a deal that they settled for $936 to be paid by Kevin Tunnell to the family $1 a week for the next 18 years. You see, the family didn't need his money. What they needed and what they wanted is they wanted this Kevin guy to remember every single week to remember that one night as a teenager when he was driving drunk, he hit and killed their kid. I want you to remember what you did to me. Kevin Tunnell went to prison. Kevin Tunnell became an advocate against drunk driving. Kevin Tunnell went to high schools and spoke to teenagers about the dangers of drinking and especially the dangers of drinking and driving. But for some reason, he kept forgetting to mail in the check, $1, every once in a while. The family took him to court three different times. And, and the judge asked him, what, what gives, Kevin? I mean, it went from $1.5 million to under $1,000. Why can't you do this? To which he responded, because I'm haunted and I'm tormented by what I did. And I'm trying to move on and move forward. But I keep getting dragged back every week when I write that check. And he had two boxes filled with checks and he offered them to the family. And the family said, no, we want you to send one in every single week. Now, I have never had that happen to me. I, I can't imagine the pain from that family and I don't want to minimize it in the least. But I do want to use that story as a trampoline to ask you a question. How many payments do you require from those who hurt you? When is enough enough? Because some of us are living our life with that knife in their back and we keep twisting and twisting and twisting. See, you either trust Romans 12 or you don't. But maybe it's time to stop twisting the knife, pull it out and let God deal with everything else. Forgiveness requires you to relinquish that right. It also means you are to respond to evil with good. Luke chapter 6, very difficult verse. Chapter, verse 27, 28 says this, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now, just to be clear, you don't have to go camping with them. You don't have to have them over for Thanksgiving. Right? Uh, you are required to love do good, bless, and pray. Well, pastor, that's a big ask. Yep, it's a really big ask. But again, remember, God is not asking you to do anything that he's already done for you. Could I suggest, for those that have harmed you as you apply Luke chapter 6, maybe you go in stages. Stage number one is you want to wring their neck so they can't breathe anymore. You ever got to that point or is that just me? Okay. Okay. Do you just, right? You go from here 
and just take a step in this direction where instead of wringing their neck, oh, okay, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to pull your hair. Okay? And then take a step this way. I'm going to be civil to you. And then take one step this way. I'm going to be respectful to you. And take, take one step this way. I'm not going to have you over at Thanksgiving, but I am going to be nice to you. I, I get it. It's very, very, very hard to go from here and take the step all the way to the other side. But you can take one step. You are to respond to evil. You are to respond to wrong with good. The third thing is you are to release your pain to God. Psalm chapter 68 says that we are to praise God because he daily bears our burdens. Don't ever, ever, ever minimize your pain and your hurt. Don't ever let anyone say it's time to move on. We all adjust to pain and we all process pain differently. In fact, to minimize your pain, to bury it and to pretend it's not there is incredibly unhealthy psychologically and spiritually. And I'm telling you, it'll come up somewhere, somehow in your future if you don't deal with it. And Psalm 68 suggests that God helps me carry that burden. And, and we, we, you might be here going, that sounds good. I'm not sure how to do that. I'm going to tell you how to do that. You got the verse right there. Tuck it down and write it down right now and look it up. Because here's what it looks like. It means you pray to God and you say, dear God, I'm angry or I'm sad or I'm hurting or I have hate and bitterness inside of me and it's killing me. And as best as I know how, I want to give that to you and ask you to please help me carry it. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that feels like, but I'm going to trust that Psalm 68 really means what it says. In Jesus' name, amen. And I promise you that if you pray that prayer, you will start to allow and feel the pain to fade away a little bit by little bit. I promise you. You will always remember, but when you remember, it won't sting as bad. Part of forgiving is relinquishing and responding and releasing your pain to God. And the last part is you repeat the process as often as necessary. Have you ever looked and seen what's on the backside of a shampoo bottle? Three things, three words, wash, rinse, and repeat. They want you to use as stinking as much shampoo as you possibly can. And in Matthew chapter 18 when he is, Jesus is asked, how many times should I forgive? He says 77 times. 70, the law required seven. He says, no, 77. And by that, he means you just keep doing it over and over again. You've got to be kidding me. Over and over again? Yeah, but understand. Go back to what we covered. If you forgive someone and they do the same thing again, the hedge gets a little bit bigger. And they do the same thing again, now it gets even bigger. So the relationship keeps changing. Does that make sense? But you are to repeat over and over and over again. That's what he's asking you to do. You are to relinquish. You are to respond. You are to release. And then you're to repeat. Even or especially if they don't apologize. Offering forgiveness. The flip side of the coin is the next one. Seeking forgiveness. In your bulletin, it says receiving. I, you know what? I changed the word yesterday morning in my notes. 
To me, receiving sounds like you're sitting on the couch waiting for it to happen. So if you do have notes, scratch that word out and put seeking. Because seeking is much more intentional. Much more intentional. There are five steps if you have wronged or hurt someone else. Number one, you admit it. You humbly admit what you did and why what you did was hurtful and wrong and sinful. Now, here's what a lot of us do. I'm sorry for doing blank. You know what? I shouldn't have busted you upside the head. But you know what? You did. No, there's no but. There's no extenuating circumstance. Now, maybe you did what you did in response to something they did. But the apology and the forgiveness is not the time to talk about it. Does that make sense? No, there's no justification. What I did and why it was wrong, hurtful, and sinful. Have the humility to state that. You must admit. The second word is initiate. Initiate. You must go out of your way to reconcile and say sorry. If you were the individual who did the harm, you must initiate it. God brought some of us here this morning to remind us of someone in our life that we wronged. And to this, this afternoon and this week, he wants you to make a phone call. He wants you to send an email or he wants you to write a card. I guarantee you he brought some of us here to do that. Because you haven't dealt what you did. You've moved on, but they have not. And part of it is because you have not seek their forgiveness. You admit, you initiate, and the third one is you apologize sincerely, quickly, appropriately, appropriately, and completely. I don't mean to be crass when I say this, but uh, what I've observed is we suck at apologizing. We are not good at apologizing, right? We, we for some reason, have a way of minimizing the apology and assuming that just because we say a couple words, it's done. Let me give you an example of how sometimes the apology doesn't live up to what we did. Okay? Let's say my good friend Bill and Stacy Herbert. We saw him on the video earlier. They were the people on the video. Good friends of mine. He's on our leadership board. They, they call me and they say, I'm going to, we're going to Sacramento. We're going to be with my, my son up there in, college, in university this weekend. And uh, because they love God... Okay, they are dog and not cat people. And they said, can you please go to my home, feed the dog and let him out? No problem. I'll do that. So they're gone and I head up to their house. They are just about three minutes away from where I live. And I go in and I let the dog out and I feed him. And while I'm there, I go into their fridge because I'm one of those friends that has refrigerator privileges. So I go in and I get a Coke and I get a soda. And then I see I see that they have some chili in there leftovers from from a meal that week and i'm thinking that looks good so i take it go to the stove heat that sucker up i'm eating it waiting for the dog to come in delicious while i'm eating it i get a little bit on my shirt so i'm like i gotta wash this sucker off you know how it is that stains and so i go to the bathroom i notice that their first bathroom the guest bathroom they're doing some work in there plumbing or something i don't go in there so i go it's a little bit weird but i'm gonna go to their back bedroom go to their bathroom just gonna wash off and good so i go back there i wash off but I make the mistake when I leave their bedroom, I don't close the door behind me like I found it. So when I leave their dog, which is like this big and looks like a bear, goes in there and chews all of Stacy's shoes. Uh huh. Gets better. 
You know the chili that I heated up on the stove? I forgot to turn the burner off. And so it catches the curtains on fire. The fire department don't get there until the kitchen and half the living room is burned. Okay, set it up. I see them for the first time on Sunday here at church. Right after the service, right after the sermon. You know, I haven't seen you guys for a long time. I'm shaking hands. I'm kissing babies. I'm doing what I need to do. Right. And I see Bill and Stacy. Right. And I'm like, Bill, Stacy. My bad about the burner. My bad about the door. Call me. Let's go. Call. Was that an appropriate apology? It's a stupid illustration, but you get the point, don't you? My apology didn't raise to what I did. It wasn't appropriate enough. And so many of us apologize and wonder why they can't get over it. Honestly, some of us, the way we apologize, you might as well not even say it. Because if I did to them what I did in the story, it would literally make matters worse, wouldn't it? Because of how I did it. You apologize sincerely, which means you got to dig deep and figure out what you did to them and what emotional response it caused in them and the pain that it caused in them. And you have to try and match that. You apologize quickly. Don't wait. Don't wait. The longer you wait, the worse it is. One of the best lessons I learned in marriage and I try to apply is I apologize to my wife quickly. That's not funny. I do. I do have to apologize every once in a while, like almost every day. There's something I do. I'm sorry. It's called marriage, right? Appropriately. See, sometimes the apology requires restitution. Would you agree? If this situation happened, what I probably should do to be a genuine apology is to go to Bill and say, could you do me a favor? Whatever the insurance doesn't cover, whatever your deductible is, let me know so I can take care of that. That would be an appropriate apology. You know, and furthermore, I go to Stacy and say, here's a gift card that I want to give you to cover your shoes. You know, so here's, here's this gift card to Target. No, <laughs> So, that's not where she buys her shoes. I'd be spending a lot on shoes. <laughs> you got to do it appropriately. And let me just add completely. I don't know why we don't get this. I'm sorry is not enough. That is not a complete apology. I'm sorry. These last couple words, if you don't say them, I'm telling you from this perspective and any counselor worth their weight in gold will tell you, here's a complete apology. I am sorry. And here it comes. Will you forgive me? If you aren't adding those words, I'm telling you, you are not putting that person you harmed in the proper mental and psychological and spiritual place to move on. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? Do you have to say that about everything? Probably not, right? 
My good friend Terrence right down here, we're playing in fantasy football this weekend. I will, I will call him on Monday. I am sorry I beat your butt as bad as I did. That, I don't have to say I'm forgiven for everything. So there are levels, but understand that. And the last one is, <laughs> the last one, sorry, I apologize for that. I shouldn't have said that. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> he forgave me if you didn't hear me. Uh, change. God expects you to change your life based upon his son's sacrifice and the power of forgiveness in your life. I've gone over. Let me call Joy up here, and I'm going to wrap up uh, by reading from this book right here. It's a book authored entitled Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace. And he writes a parody on the story we just read. So I want you to put your Bibles down. I want you to put your notes down. And as we're reading through this, I want you to try and figure out who are you in the story. Not, not so much the story from here, but the story we just read, because you're one of the characters. You, you are either the son that did something incredibly wrong, incredibly hurtful, incredibly sinful, and you need to seek forgiveness. And for some of you, God has already put that situation and that person in your memory who you got to seek forgiveness from. And some here are like the father. You've been wronged. You've been hurt. And you need to give. You need to offer forgiveness. I want you to be thinking about that. I'm going to read this story. We'll sing one song and I'll let you get going. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night she acts on a plan she has been mentally rehearsing scores of time and she runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip her church youth group uh, took to watch the Detroit Tigers play. But because newspapers in Traverse City report lurid details, the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that is probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges for a place for her to stay. Then he gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all this fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car she calls boss teaches her a few things about what men really like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse, orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home but their lives now seem boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she even grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now she has blonde hair and with makeup and body piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Beside, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year... The first sallow signs of illness appear and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. 
She still turns a couple tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. The winter blows in, and she finds herself sleeping on metal gates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city, and she begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty, and she feels hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind. May in Traverse City, when a million cherry blossoms at once, with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of trees, chasing a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? She says to herself, and the pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash. That more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls and three state connections to the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time, she says, "Dad, Mom, it's me. I'm wondering maybe about coming home." I'm catching a bus up your way, and I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City, and during that time, she realizes the flaws of her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so so she could talk to them? And even if they're home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have, she should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech that she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's 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 not your fault. It's mine. Dad, can you find it in yourself to forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening every time she reaches them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus finally rolls into the station, and its air brakes hissing in protest. The driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, "Fifteen minutes, folks. That's all we have here. Fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes to decide her life." She checks the compact mirror she has, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're even there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. None of the thousand scenes she played, she played out in her mind, prepare her for what she sees. 
there in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stand a group of 40 brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, and a grandmother. They're all wearing goofy hats and blowing those noisemakers and taped across the wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers, she sees her dad. Through her tears quivering with, hot, with tears like hot mercury, she begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm so sorry. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet is waiting for you at home. And then the author ends the story and he says this. We're accustomed to finding a catch in every promise. But Jesus' stories of extravagant grace include no catch, no loophole, just his love for you. Let's close in prayer. I want you to take a moment and try and figure out why God wanted you here today. It's only one of two things. You're either like the son or the daughter in this story that needs to seek forgiveness from someone you've deeply hurt. Or you're the father and someone has hurt you. And God brought you here this morning because you need to forgive them. I want you to take a moment and figure out why did he bring you here? And what are you going to do about it? God is asking you to do is always and only based upon what he first did for you what he did for you the Bible calls grace we refer to it as amazing grace and so as we conclude our study time we're going to remember that in song we're going to worship God because of what he is and who he is and what he's done for us Heavenly Father we heard you loud and clear this morning we know what you want us to do. You brought people to mind we need to forgive. For others of us, you brought people to mind that we need to seek forgiveness from. Now give us the courage and the self-discipline to walk out of here and to actually apply and to do what you've challenged us to do. Father, we are so incredibly grateful that we have the ability to do that. We have the power and the strength to do that. Because you first did that to us. And you just did that for us. Father, we love you. Not just for your amazing grace. 
and for your incredible love. Father, we love you, not just because of what you did, but what you're doing for us even right now. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.